This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. We are not experts in any of the subjects we discuss. Please enjoy accordingly. As always, this episode will contain spoilers. I'm Sunny. And I'm Scooter. Welcome to Swap People. Welcome to Swap People indeed. Before we get started, we discussed uh, an additional disclaimer for this episode. Um, yes. So what we're going to be discussing is heavily tied to fascism. We will be discussing U.S. militarism. What we want to say here is that we will not be discussing this in terms of individual soldiers' choices, at least not in terms of any criticisms of individual soldiers. We understand that there are a multitude of things that go into why someone would serve in a military. Um, what we will be criticizing is the overarching military structure, the nature of fascism within a society. And I believe that the the movie we're discussing, Starship Troopers today, um, actually does address this in the film itself. Uh, when we're talking about, we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but the idea of there's this scene where all of the soldiers tell us why they've joined uh they've joined this military and all of them are very reasonable, not all of them, but most of them are pretty reasonable, relatable reasons. Absolutely. I think you and I would probably both agree that, you know, it's hard to judge uh, an 18 year old making a life decision like that in the same way that, you know, we don't judge 18 year olds for accruing student loan debt. It's, you know, the system is designed to, pull kids into that because it is useful for the system to do so. So, you know, this is not a judgment of people who enlist. It's not a judgment of anyone's personal choices, but much like the movie, you know, we will have critiques of the system that pulls people in. Yes. So with that out of the way, Scooter, do you want to start with a kind of a synopsis of Starship Troopers? Give us a little context before we get into it. Absolutely. So Starship Troopers uh, is directed by Paul Verhoeven. Uh, noted satirists. Uh, it is an adaptation of the Robert Heinlein novel of the same name, which the movie is sort of an adaptation against the novel, if you will, because the novel is very much a coming-of-age story in a fascist utopia, and the movie is a coming-of-age story in a fascist utopia, but in parentheses, sarcasm. Yes. So it's... um. Basically, it follows the story of three friends, but our main character is Johnny Rico. Uh, he has a girlfriend named Carmen Ibanez, which it's supposed to be Ibanez, but they pronounce it Ibanez, uh, and another friend named Carl. And they all enlist in the military together because they live in a future society where all of the world's people are united under a fascist regime. Uh, it's no longer a democracy. In order to have the right to vote, you need to be a citizen. Everyone else is just considered a civilian. You earn citizenship by doing federal service. Carl uh, is a psychic and a genius, so he goes to military intelligence, which hilariously is called uh, Games in Theory. And he's played by Neil Patrick Harris, Neil Patrick which Harris. is delightful i think uh you might note that this is all set in argentina 
It is all set in Argentina and all of the characters are white. It's very much an in-joke about them all being the descendants of Nazis. Um, <laughs> uh, and the, I would like to talk about MPH in depth a little later, but I think that they... Paul Verhoeven kind of accidentally stumbled on a very talented actor in his attempt to cast pretty people who would be very doll-like because our other two leads, um, Denise Richards plays Carmen, who joins the pilot program, um, and Johnny Rico, our main character, who joins the mobile infantry. And it covers, you know, their journeys as they move up through uh, the ranks in their first year of boot camp leading up to a asteroid hits their hometown of Buenos Aires and the government uses this as a reason to initiate a full-scale war on the arachnids who are these like a race of bugs who will often interfere with human colonization efforts and so now they're going to do a full-scale attack on the bug home planet because they have in quotes pinpointed the origin of the asteroid as the bug home planet of Clendathu. So they invade Clendathu, it goes terribly, a bunch of people die, and then they change up their strategy and start uh, attacking uh, smaller bug planets in an effort to find what they believe is a brain bug, which is a bug who can sort of act as a hive mind. And it ends with, they find the brain bug, some people die, it's quite sad. And uh, they capture the brain bug, and it ends with sort of a triumphant, yes, we've done it, we've captured the brain bug, the bugs are afraid of us now. And so that's the plot in a nutshell. We're going to get into some stuff in more detail, but um, I would like to start off with, you know, as I'm, since I'm the one that only picks the movies, Sonny, what did you think of this one? I actually really liked this one. Um, I don't always like your picks, just because I'm not a movie person. Um so I know in previous episodes I have referred to this as Stormship Troopers because I get my space fascists mixed up. <laughs> Understandable. Um, I'm not a Heinlein fan. Uh, he's not not my not my jam. Uh, I don't know that I know anyone who's a Heinlein fan. I you know I'm a I'm a science fiction person. I'm not. I tend to not really read fascist propaganda. Yeah, he is at best very like fifties conservative, and in his worst moments, is an outright fascist. Yeah, is the problem with science fiction, and I will have this conversation a lot, is that we kind of look at what the science fiction canon is, and the science fiction canon is really kind of depressing because it's a genre created mostly by women. Uh, it's a genre that is really kind of a great place to explore marginalized identity, marginalized utopias, things like that. Stories that are often existing on the margins. Science fiction is a beautiful place for that. And we sort of have, a, we allowed it to become, and I say we allowed it to become, white men set up, you know, science fiction societies and things like that to determine who's good and who's not. And it really eliminated a lot of the diversity we think of in science fiction, which is why we have this, like, belief. Not we. Some people have this belief that science fiction uh, used to be serious. It, it didn't. It was never. It was always a place for marginalized people. We just never 
promoted those people, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, because I mean, think about it. I, there's argument about whether it is. I'm not going to get into like a scholarship rabbit hole about science fiction, but there is popularly attributed that Mary Shelley is the is the creator of modern science fiction. Yes. I, even if, you know, it's debatable whether Frankenstein was the first or that Shelley was really the, the first the to originate, the, the originator of science fiction, it's inarguable that she was there day one. You know, it's inarguable she is, that... She is highly influential. And if one of the most influential pre authors to form the genre is a teenage girl... You have no right to say that it's a boys' club, even though they tried to make it one. All this Absolutely. said, I'm forgetting my point. Do you remember what my point was? Do you remember where I started with this? Uh, honestly, no. But I, I, to be frank with you, this is we're getting right into why I picked this movie. This is an area of expertise for you. I am not I'm an expert. This. When I say expertise, not that you're an expert, but uh, it's an area <laughs> of, of that you have studied and that you are somewhat knowledgeable about. And I, I appreciate you sharing what you know and your opinions on it. Not that I think you're going to teach us some universal truth or that you're going to give us expert testimony, but more that I think your opinion is going to come from a, a quite informed place. And I think that that's very exciting for me and our listeners. Perhaps. They might our, just find me boring. Uh, our future sugar daddies. future sugar daddies. Uh, that's what we settled on, right? Is that what we settled on? I don't know. You made a well, you made a joke about we are not looking for sugar daddies. This was a joke about a potential Patreon. Um, <laughs> well, in in the time since we recorded that episode, uh, which will be I think was episode three. This is going to be episode five. Um, we have not done any research because I believe that we ended on we needed to figure out a gender neutral term for sugar daddy. I think we well, you know is what sugar daddy. No, because Zaddy's its own thing. And I don't know. I don't know what a Zaddy is. I'm old. No, you know what? I, you know how I remember exactly how that conversation ended. We uh, tried out Sugar Guardian, and then I made a joke about how that sounds like someone from Cajun folklore, uh, the Sugar Guardian. Uh, and then you got, you warned me not to do a Cajun accent, which I did not. <laughs> yeah, better to steer clear of that. But so I just. I think Heinlein falls into that area of boys club. So like, Absolutely. I don't like Orson Scott card all that much. Ender's game was fine, but really Ender's game is sort of the least offensive of his work. I say offensive, not in a, like, uh, the way conservatives call snowflake sort of way, but offensive in that it's just to me, not all that great. <laughs> yes. As, as someone who is, greatly enjoys Ender's Game and its direct sequel, Speaker for the Dead. I feel like those two books are better than the author who made them and I think are reflective of his best work prior to his descent into what he is now. Like, I'm sure he had some of those thoughts and opinions back then, but I think he somehow managed to put out... Um, I think a, f a fairly decent pair of sci-fi novels that are not you know full of the kinds of things we know that he thinks yes 
Well, and I think what I will say is this idea of like space fascists are, it, it's a super common idea. It's something that happens a lot in science fiction. And in the most famous one today is Star Wars, right? Absolutely. Star Wars is a space opera about fascism and good and evil. And it's, it's about a lot of stuff. Uh, but I, I think uh, Starship Troopers is maybe, it's significantly funnier. It's dark funny, but it's funny. Yeah, it's it's. There's many times where uh, someone will do something, and I would turn to Sunny with like, "Are you gonna laugh? Are you gonna cringe? Are you do you look like you're about to maybe throw up a little bit?" And it's kind of you. It's kind of all three. There's some moments like that where it's really hitting the hammer, like hitting the nail just directly on the head, and not being subtle about it. Not to jump too much to the end, but um, well, it is to the end, but. The joke that was for me, because I knew the joke about the the, infantry. the mobile infantry made me the man I am today, and then he pushes away from the desk and his legs are gone. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a classic. Yeah. So I knew that was coming, but the one that really got me, and I didn't like, I couldn't put a full laugh in because it was all so painful, uh, and it was just like, oh, um, was at the end when they capture, so they find that there's this brain bug that when it eats the brains, it can figure out what humans are thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so they capture this brain bug, and then Neil Patrick Harris, who is, and, and I cannot stress this enough, the symbolism in this movie is not subtle. He is in full Nazi garb. Like, he's in all black, the hat, everything. He is in, he is in uh, SS officer regalia. Oh yeah, black trench coat, hat with an eagle on it. Oh yeah, no, full full Nazi. So he goes up, and because he is a psychic, he puts his hand up to this, and they're like, "Carl, what's he thinking?" And he's surrounded by all of these soldiers that have just fought this battle, and leadership. There's a general, and Carl goes, "He's afraid," or "It's afraid," and the whole the whole crowd just starts cheering. Yes. And I just cringed because it was such a, like, there's no empathy for your enemy. Yes. The ultimate moment of triumph is that another creature is afraid. Yes. That, that they have succeeded by instilling fear into this sentient being that honestly, they invaded its territory. They've encroached on its space and all these creatures are really doing are defending their home. Absolutely. And uh, <laughs> their their great victory is that they have struck fear into this heart and then they bring it back to the lab and they start doing experiments on it. Yes, it it the you know the final shots of the movie are because uh, the whole movie is interspersed with these propaganda videos that are meant to be like almost like a splash page for a website so it'll They're show. So good too. They're very good. They're very like late 90s like early internet style and so it'll be a video of like neil patrick harris or some other scientist doing something horrible like just killing something and in a gruesome way and they'll throw up this big black bar that just says censored even though it's not really stopping you from seeing what's going on so there's one early on where they feed a cow to one of the arachnids and then they put up the sign that says censored over the cow but you can see all the guts flying out from behind the censored sign yeah and it's it, that's one of those moments where you're like, I don't know if I should laugh at this, but it's it's so outwardly funny. My favorite one of the of the 
propagandas was the kids that all got in a circle and stomped all the roaches. Yes, and like then the, they were training early. The the mother is laughing maniacally and clapping and cheering them on. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, oh no. Yes. So the first one they show, uh, so the cold open is the invasion of Clendathia. We open in Meteor Res and like everybody dies. It's gruesome. We cut to a year ago. And the first propaganda thing they show is from the mobile infantry. And it's people turning to the camera going, I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. And then it ends with like a very small boy saying, I'm doing my part too. And everyone turns and goes, ah, ha, 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 ha. Yeah. And it's, we were watching that and it's like five minutes into the movie. We've already seen some like pretty rough, like, like cartoonish gore. It was kind Yes. Some pretty rough violence, and the part where the little kid says, and I'm doing my part, was the first time my wife went, oh, God. Because it was it was very reminiscent of, like, a lot of fascistic messaging, right? Like, that's the moment you go, oh, there's the Hitler youth. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, so all those videos, it'll show, like, a little clip like that, and then it'll say, would you like to know more? And then it'll show a little mouse clicking on the next thing. Um, and that's... So that's uh that's a common thing. I say common thing. That's at least in it's also that's a thing that's also in like RoboCop, which is the Paul Verhoeven movie that comes before this where um we may at some point watch RoboCop in the future, but before we talk about RoboCop, just real quick. The reason I have resisted watching RoboCop is because when we're in public and Scooter wants to embarrass me, he does a RoboCop walk and yells, "Don't you love RoboCop?" Love RoboCop while I run away from him. This happens in grocery stores and parking lots everywhere. Well, RoboCop is a metaphor for the American interpretation of Jesus. And so I just want to make sure that you're right with our Lord and Savior. American Jesus. American Jesus. (laughs) A.K.A. RoboCop. Part Uh, Robo, part Cop. All all Savior. All Savior. Um, No, but so RoboCop is interspersed with commercials for these absurd, like, capitalist hellscape game shows and there's a guy that like fam- the famous catchphrase is this this guy who they'll show some absurd thing cut to his weird little face and i'll be like i'll buy that for a dollar and so i'll buy that for a dollar is to robocop what starship troopers would you like to know more i like i like seeing propaganda mocked i enjoy that because i feel like we have a problem today with propaganda and misinformation and I don't know. I I connected with this. I saw a lot of our existing problems already in there. So the fact that we start with high school students was really powerful to me because I can think back to having kind of a predatory military person there recruiting in my high school. They set up a table in my cafeteria like three days a week. And it was gross. And it's gross when I think back on it. It's predatory. Um, the military often profits off of poor people. Uh, for people who don't have a way out of whatever situation they're in. For people who need to be paid for college. So that brings me to talking about uh, sort of the reasons for being there. And this one really heartbreaking to me because uh i'm a bit of a nerd i love school and one of the one of the people there they go through why they're all part of the mobile infantry 
And one of them goes, I got into Harvard, but it was too expensive. So the military is going to pay for Harvard after I'm done. Oh, yeah. That guy does not survive either. He dies. He dies brutally, as do many of them. Yeah. So I, I mean, most, I think. Somebody wanted to reproduce. Somebody wanted a child. And they said, the citizens have a much better chance of having children. I, well, I believe her exact words are, citizenship makes it so much easier to get a license. Because you need a license to have a child. Yes. Um, somebody wanted to go into politics and they can't go into politics without the military service. How does that sound for us? You can't vote with that military service in the society. Either. Well, it, so it stems from, and I think we're going to go back to the high school thing. Um, we're introduced to this world and what it's like through their history teacher, Mr. Rajak, mm-hmm. who I don't know if it's history, if he's like their civics teacher, but like he explains that, in the 20th century, we all observed the great failure that was democracy and yes. that order was put to the world when the veterans took over and decided to make decisions for us. And so because of that now, only citizens can vote and you gain your citizenship through federal service. So you essentially have to have served in the military to vote. You have to have served in the military to hold office. It's, you know, and there are civilians and, um, I think Rico's parents are civilians and they're wealthy. Like there are civilians who have sort of a privileged life, but it's very much held up as this like, you know, civilians are like the cattle that need to be protected and they owe everything to the citizens and the citizens get to make all the decisions. Hmm. So sunny soapbox time. Hell yeah. (laughs) Hell yeah. Soapbox, soapbox, get them. So I, I think the, what was the teacher's name? Rajak. Rajak. So I think he served a really instrumental purpose in the whole story. Um, and, and we'll get into later on. He had, he had really important stuff whenever he sort of goes into the military again. But I think as a teacher, he shows how important academic freedom is, how important it is to not have things controlled uh, by the state. Uh, and, and how important it is to prioritize education because education can very easily become indoctrination if the truth is not the guiding principle in how we educate people. So he is very much an indoctrinator. Uh, Absolutely. Like 100%, and he's indoctrinating teenagers into wanting to be part of this service that does not serve them. They literally refer to it as a meat grinder in the movie because pe- so many people die. And I just I think that that is a cornerstone of fascism. And I think the undermining of education and educators is a cornerstone of fascism. I mean, and I think that's something worth thinking about in our current political climate, because think about Florida. Florida just passed a thing where um, you could be a teacher if you had military service, didn't they? I don't know if that's fully passed yet, but, but yes. But it's they, on the table. Yeah. That was terrifying. I was like, oh, oh, no, that's a parallel. And they also had a thing um, where school counselors, is it Florida, where you don't have to be a counselor, you can just be a chaplain, which requires not nearly the same education? Yes, I believe that's the case. Um, and you have what's going on. 
all across the country, Texas is currently the worst for this, but book banning of books that don't conform to certain ideologies, largely books about racism uh, and queerness uh, are being challenged for critical race theory, CRT. And when I say they're being challenged, they're being challenged at exponentially higher rates than they have in previous years. Uh, It's just kind of horrifying. And I think this is a timely movie because it is not that I don't believe that the U.S. military has a long history of being fascist, but I think the rest of the country is following pretty hard right now. Uh, And I think we should really look at how undercut, how we undercut educators. Um, Absolutely. Because the the first way that the first two steps of instilling a fascist regime is scapegoat people and taking control of the education system. Moms for Liberty recently put a quote in one of their um, newsletters. It was something to, I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, It says, he who controls education controls the future by Adolf Hitler. Moms for Liberty, if you don't know, is a group that's highly concerned with removing wokeness from schools. And they are largely concerned with book bans and book challenges as well. For those of you who have not been through middle school yet, Adolf Hitler was a failed artist from Germany who decided to take it out on a lot of people, mostly Jews, a lot of gay people. Anyone, disabled people? Disabled people, the Romani. He is the most noted fascist in in world history, but not the only one. Certainly. So, I loved Sunshine Soapbox Corner. That was fantastic. <laughs> Why I picked this movie is because I knew it would get, I'd get this from you. So I think, uh, in the interest of you know, I think we kind of put our politics out on the table. We're as a podcast, we are leftists. Yes, and so uh, you know, for a little background on the movie, Paul Verhoeven is Dutch, um, and when he was a child, experienced uh, Nazi-occupied Amsterdam. I believe he's from Amsterdam, but um has sort of been obsessed with fascism, violence, sex, like obscenity. Uh, and in this were, and even some of the sexual banter were kinky. Very much so. This is so, this is, that's also a recurring theme in Verhoeven's work is he likes to set movies in a post- prudish world so like in this movie men and women shower together they're very open about like sex and stuff and it's you know i i don't think something i think is interesting about this movie is it's as in your face as it is about like this is what propaganda looks like this is how you should recognize propaganda this is a fascist just deeply deeply fascist society and it is a meat grinder it is not you know the story is not told with any like real villains in it. You're mostly watching the story of like these kids and it is basically, he has established this world, this like fascist utopia, if you will. And we're just sort of watching the coming of age of these characters. And like, 
I think, you know, kind of to the benefit of the movie for fleshing it out, it does include like some, it's going to, I'm going to try to navigate this as gently as possible. It does include some good stuff, like the fact that they shower together and it does not seem like sexual assault is a concern within the military, I think is, you know, something that people would probably argue is good. Um, and it's, I, I just kind of find it interesting that it's not, it's not relentless. It is just like, it is very much a world that you can tell is founded on just nastiness. But it's, you know, it's not a rising fascist empire. It's not fascists that are, you know, currently, you know, abusing other human beings. It's a world that has already lost to fascism and fascists have won and have imparted, you know, their dream world on humanity and we as outside observers can see it for its flaws but these characters are just kind of living their lives there i had moments of guilt and i expressed this to you that i liked one of them even though everybody in that movie is a fascist there there was one character i actually genuinely liked and that was dizzy and i think dizzy kind of highlights a a, a part of fascism without really talking about what it is um, but Umberto Eco def- uh, wrote out the 14 characteristics of fascism. Okay, so before we jump into casting and characters, I just want to go through all 14 characteristics of fascism so that we have like a reference point since we are, this movie is so deeply concerned with fascism. So I'm just going to restart it. <clears throat> Number one is powerful and continuing nationalism. So uh, nationalism is extreme patriotism, basically. Uh, we could, there's a more nuanced definition. I'm not getting into it. A disregard for human rights. Uh, so when uh, people's human rights are violated, the general society tends to make excuses for it. We look away. We do other things. Identification of, enemy, of enemies as a unifying cause. So we scapegoat people. Uh, not going to say too much about our current system. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. But if we're going to the most well-known example of fascism, it would be Hitler with the Jewish people, with uh, communists, communists, with. Um, and by that I mean Hitler scapegoating the communists. Not... Yes, Hitler scapegoated communists. We're not. Um, with I'm trying the Romani people, perhaps with disabled people, with queer people, all of these people were scapegoated uh, and are sometimes scapegoated still today. Uh, Supremacy of the military. If we think the military is just hero, 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 we want to put all of our funding into the military. That's a sign of fascism. Uh, Widespread sexism. So this looks like a bunch of different things. This can be... um, where your government is mostly male-dominated, where gender roles are more rigidly enforced, the persecution of homosexuality uh, and transgender identity, um, the uh, removal or the disallowal of divorce through legal means, um, the outlawing of abortion... These are all connected to fascism. Number six is the control of the mass media. 
Um, so censorship being common um, and whether the government has, you know, its fingers in uh, mass media pies, kind of that sort of thing. You know, if, side note, if you don't know about the Mockingbird Media, this is your sign to go look into that. Obsession with national security. Is your safety more important than your freedom? When your religion and your government are intertwined, that is a sign of fascism. It is one of the 14 characteristics. Um, when corporate power is protected, capitalism is deeply connected, and especially corporate capitalism, is deeply connected to upholding fascism. When labor rights are suppressed, if you can't unionize, maybe check into who you're voting for. Um, and we already talked about this one, a disrespect for the intellectual and the arts. So when you undercut uh, education, open hostility to higher education, perhaps calling teachers pedophiles and groomers, maybe. Um, and when free expression in the arts and writing is openly attacked. So uh, maybe there are books you're allowed to read because the materials obscene. Uh, and then an obsession with crime and punishment. How severe and tough on crime are we? How severe and tough on crime do we expect our politicians and our law enforcement to be? Rampant cronyism and, uh, and corruption. Is your government full of corrupt cronies? Are they, are they kind of, you know, susceptible to lobbyists? Do they hire their friends into positions of power? That's a sign of fascism. And then finally, our big one, fraudulent elections. Uh, are fraudulent elections occurring? Are we worried about fraudulent elections? Are they big talking points? Perhaps these might be signs of fascism. All right, that's all four of them. I will let you draw your own conclusions, mostly. I only led you a little or a lot. <laughs> and this is what I think is important with Dizzy is sexism. Uh, misogyny is a, a key component of fascism. And here's the thing. Dizzy, to me, was pretty superior to Rico. I thought she and and the other guy, whoever the blonde guy was, Big uh, say. Yeah, he. So those two are kind of um, competing for head of their unit. Uh, I can't remember what the title was, but um, squad leader. Squad leader. So they're competing for squad leader. She's better than both of them. She puts both of them on her on their asses, um, and she punches Mr. Krabs in the face. Just straight up walks up decks him. Super great. I agree. You know, it's sort of weird, and I don't know if this is... I don't know. It's hard to tell how much of it was intentional or just an oversight just because Johnny Rico's meant to be... You know, in the, in the book, Johnny Rico is the protagonist, and I think, you know, in the movie, he is the protagonist. So I think he becomes squad leader because he's the protagonist and it's his story. But certainly, like, it seemed like they were setting up Izzy for success. She sh Dizzy for success. She shows up and is the only one who's able to take down to even kind of like make a dent on the squad, the drill sergeant who we just saw break another guy's arm. And then when they're in the training exercise that Rico gets promoted, it was her idea. Like he does the fancy moves and stuff, but it was her. She gave him the idea. She said, if you do this, you'll be able to get through the enemy lines. And then she does the covering fire for him, but he yes. gets the promotion. Yeah, they do dizzy pretty dirty. Um, 
and she is sort of only interesting in relationship to him throughout the entire movie um, because she's chasing him. She's in love with him. He never even says, I love you back whenever they're having sex. And she says, I don't think he does love her back. He doesn't love her back. She's a wormhole. Like, she's horrible. It's horrible. Dizzy deserved better. And I found myself feeling bad because I empathized with Dizzy. I liked Dizzy, but I think she is a product of the society she's in because she's a very good soldier. She excels at all these things. She's just also a fascist. And I think, to me, that really kind of speaks to almost the cult-like nature of a fascist society, which mm-hmm. is goes back to undercutting education. Well, I... Here's what I would say about all the characters and whether or not they are fascists. Some of them are. Like, I don't know that I would characterize any of the kids as fascists. They are in a world in which, like, there's only there's one government. Carl's a fascist. Carl is experimenting on a sentient being. He knows is sentient and can feel his pain. We're going we're gonna to get to that. We're going to get to that. Okay. I don't think you're supposed to, like, I don't think that... Izzy, or, sorry, I keep calling her Izzy. Izzy. I don't think that Dizzy, being, you know, a soldier in a fascist military, I don't think you're meant to take that away as like, well, she's a fascist. Yeah. Well, I think that also goes back to our disclaimer of we are not criticizing individual soldiers who exist in the real world, but we are going to criticize the systems in which they operate. Yes, because, you know, especially with our our main characters they're not really saying and doing fascist stuff they are they are falling for the dog whistles without realizing that they're dog whistles mm-hmm. and you see this in um the carmen's sense of superiority of being a pilot yes you see this in uh all of the mobile infantry going from being afraid of dying to being proud of dying. Yes. I was talking to my boss about this the other day um, in relationship to Mad Max Fury Road and sort of like this cult-like following of people who buy into a political ideology that harms them and kills them in terms of like the war boys in which the war boys are dying. The war boys are actively being harmed and they are still dying for the glory of this warlord. And I think that is how we frame a lot of military action, especially soldiers who are more likely to die than be given command. Absolutely. The, so I think this is a good moment to talk about the cast and the characters. And I, something, so I, something I will say about the cast. Verhoeven very intentionally picked people who were thought of as not good actors to play the young people. And so Casper Van Dien, like no offense. They're all very successful. They'll have wonderful lives and certainly they're better at acting than I would be. Casper Van Dien, Dina Mayer and Denise Richards are not good actors and they're not good actors on purpose. Like Carmen is terrifying because she is constantly just smiling in the middle of a war and it's just like, Oh, this is my dream. And like, she's flying a troop zip ship into a bombardment zone. And like, she's so cocky all the time. And she just looks like she's 
in a propaganda video all the time. And Casper Van Dien is like square jawed, not all that charismatic, but just you can tell that he buys into all of it. And like something that I think is very interesting is that many of the, you know, outside of those main characters, and before I finish that, before I move on to the, the side characters, we'll talk about Neil Patrick Harris and his character of Carl. Right. So we talked about how he was kind of trying to hire people who were not particularly charismatic actors to play the young parts. I think, um, interestingly, at the time, it would have been, Neil Patrick Harris would have been thought of as that because he was a child actor, hadn't really been in much. We hadn't had the, you know, we hadn't had the Harold and Kumar like NPH renaissance at this point. But I think Neil Patrick Harris actually is a very, very talented actor. And so I think part of the reason why you don't see as much of him is because I think he's actually giving a really good performance. And when you see him, you know, early on, he's this fresh-faced young boy. He's got the very much the Dookie Hauser look. And he goes, he's so excited to have been assigned to games in theory, which is military intelligence. And he, we see him in one propaganda video where he shows like, oh, if you shoot a arachnid's leg off, they're still 86% combat effective shoot it in the brainstem and then the next time we see him is after the failure of one of these big missions and he's in his full nazi garb and he has these like black circles around his eyes he is super depressed like as much as like casper van Dien is like just had a funeral for dizzy is like stone-faced and upset and angry he's still all fired up and he's still like macho hero and Carmen is like, oh, we're going to get back out there and we're going to win this. And Neil Patrick Harris looks like he has seen a thousand ghosts. Yes. Well, because he's he's essentially a Nazi scientist. He is experimenting on things he can feel. Yes. And I think that's... I think they got very lucky that Neil Patrick Harris is actually a very talented actor because his is the one character who actually realizes that they're fascists. And he is still bought in on it. But you can tell that it's eating him alive in a way that it's not eating the other ones because he understands what they're doing. Evil makes you ugly. Absolutely. But I'm saying I think that's a fantastic performance from Neil Patrick Harris. Like, if you have not seen this, even if you're aware, even if you're on board with Neil Patrick Harris being a great actor, this is an early performance that I think really shows off what he can do. Yes, it was. He was good. He was good. I did laugh at like the banality of Carl being a terrifying, I don't know, a terrifying Nazi scientist. Absolutely. Um, so he, uh, the other characters, uh, Rajak is a, a big deal. He's sort of our introduction to like, he explains how this world is. He is played wonderfully by one of my favorite all time actors, Michael Ironside. Best name in the business, by the way, Michael Ironside. He looks like he should be named Michael Ironside. And in real life, you know, he often plays villains. He often plays hard asses and military people. But in real life, he is Canadian. I believe he actually is fairly left-leaning. Mm-hmm. He So Paul Verhoeven had to be talked into doing this movie because he read the novel and was like, this is fascist garbage. Why would I make this movie? And people were like, read it again but like think about it like you thought of robocop basically and he's like oh okay yes i could do this paul verhoeven style and people will understand and then in turn he had to explain to michael ironside like no 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 no, you're gonna say all the fascist stuff but it's gonna be funny like 
you don't have to play an actual Nazi, essentially. Um, You're making fun of Nazis. Yes. And he Ironside gives a fantastic performance. And speaking of how we feel about individuals in this world versus this system, he is arguably, more than anyone else in the movie, part of the system. Like, he is... He is the one filling their heads with the idea of like democracy is bad, and he I believe he he has this whole speech about how violence is the only authority and violence is the only moral good, and that voting is an act of violence, and so you have to earn it through violence and it's horrifying, but you he it's a very Midas right moment, yes, and he is someone that believes well it seemingly believes in the system it's I think, and this is, I don't know if it's a theory. I don't know if this is, if other people interpret this. I don't think that he believes that fascism is right. I think he believes that fascism exists and he has his own personal philosophy for how to find a modicum of happiness in this world. Because there are moments where this bleeds through where he, uh, Rico talks about how he like actively discourages people from federal service. And then when he approaches him and says, Hey, you've inspired me. I want to enlist. What would you do in my place? His answer is making a choice for your own is the only freedom that we're allowed to have. You should make use of that and you have to decide for yourself. And I think that's a very real moment of like a guy who realized long ago, you're stuck here. Like this is what you do. And the only way you can have freedom is to embrace it. And that's kind of how I interpret his character. Because there are moments of warmth where he, te- he genuinely seems to care about people. He wants his soldiers to be happy. Because later in the film, it is revealed that he is a lieutenant with his own squad called the Roughnecks. Um, and Yeah, he gets some beer and balls for like sports. Oh yeah, he gets some balls. I realized how that came out. <laughs> well, and he encourages he encourages Casper. He encourages them to have sex. Uh, yeah, he, all sorts of stuff. I think that is the only thing where this deviates from. I say more traditional forms of fascism, but fascism is a relatively new political philosophy. It's not that old, um, but at least in terms of various political, it's it's fairly modern. Um, but he he stops Rico and he says, "Hey, don't turn down anything that's good." Yes, it's yeah. sweet. I don't know. Uh, if anything in this movie could be sweet, that's. I think that's why this movie works is because it's so obvious and apparent that what they're all going through is awful. They are, as they're told by the recruiter, they are more meat for the grinder. It's, but at the same time, you like them all. You don't want them to die. You know, you are following their journey to find happiness. And I, th- I think that movie, the movie works because it's not like, look at all these terrible people doing terrible things. It's more like, look what fascism does to ordinary people. Like, look what fascism does to our handsome youth and our best and brightest. Look what it does to the smart kids. Look what it does to the athletic kids. Like, Look what happens to people in this world. And the only happiness you find is, you know, a 20-minute break after a mission where you get to have beer and dance. Yeah, it is grim. It, it's a, 
it's a funny movie in the saddest possible way. Speaking of funny and speaking of good side performances, Rue McClanahan. I love Rue plays their science teacher. She's got Thank like, you for being a friend. She's got like a weird kind of burned face and these goggles on that she and like just like a just a buzzed, like butched military haircut. And she's teaching she's walking them through dissections of bugs. And which was horrifying. They were not wearing gloves. They're not wearing gloves. They're just ripping guts out. It's so gross, but delightful. It's if you're (laughs) someone who enjoys practical effects in movies, Casper Van Dien just handling, handing wiggling organs to to Denise Richards and she throws up on them is like movie magic. (laughs) I was so grossed out. There were multiple times I could not watch the screen. It was very good. The effects. And I think the effects in this movie are fantastic. There's so much practical stuff. And even the bits of CGI actually still look pretty good. So anyway, Rue McClanahan is this like, she's dressed like a mad scientist and is kind of like cackling through this lesson and someone and is talking about how how much we can learn from the arachnids and, and how like perfect of a species they are. And Denise Richards is like, but didn't humans invent art and culture and and music? And she's like, yes, but the arachnids reproduce at such an incredible rate and they have managed to colonize spacefaring worlds despite uh, having, like, is she, you have to see it. She's a crazy lady who clearly has respect for a species that is inherently fascist. Like, the bugs are a hive mind that just does their business and has no room for art and culture. And the weird, like, respect she has for that, she's probably the most fascist person in the movie, aside from, like, the brief glimpses we get of, like, the admirals and stuff. But yeah she is and she just has that bit part but it's so good it's the bit parts in this movie are really great they're uh drill instructor zim played by uh clancy brown yes the voice of mr Krabs himself clancy brown who is a hard ass with them and then when the invasion happens there's this little conversation he has where he's like i want action and they're like we need you here the only way you're gonna see action is if you bust yourself down a private you understand me and then at the end of the movie, when they catch the brain bug, someone's like, who did it? Who captured it? They go, I don't know, some private. And then it turns out it's Zim, and he busts himself down a private. And it's <laughs> it's a weirdly, like, it's, you know, in the midst of that, like, the glory of their fascistic Absolutely. Empire. That's the, tra- <laughs> this movie is a tragedy. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's comedy and tragedy, like, the both... It's two sides of the same coin. Yes. Well, and it ends with they are now the poster children for the recruitment video. It's like, yeah, they are very much part of the system now because they become they as you gain more power, the more accountability you also have, and that's very evident in this film, I think, because you start out and they're just like you pity the kids, and then they get more and more agency within it as they become more successful. And it's almost like you pay the price of being a citizen and you then can't back out of it because it is too much. Mm -hmm. You are too culpable. You have too much blood on your hands. You had to have been doing it for the right reasons and the right thing had to have been a just and worthy cause or everything that you did, all of the horrific things you did were wrong yes yeah i think you knocked it out of the park with this one i loved this one i love good satire i love good science fiction i hate fascists 
Oh yeah, I, this is probably I think his best movie. I like a lot of his other stuff. I, I love RoboCop. I love. I think his like trilogy of like they will be everlasting movies to me are RoboCop, Starship Troopers, and uh, Total Recall. I have not seen any of them. Well, I've seen Starship Troopers now, obviously. I don't know. I probably don't need to cover. I love Total Recall. Probably don't need to cover it. Total Recall is the one with the lady with three boobs, right? Yes. I mean, I might watch it for that. Sure. <laughs> I mean, that's a sad thing, though. Is it? Yes. The, so she lives in a slum from people who have been poisoned by Mars's atmosphere. Oh, no. It's and like a birth defect? There, Yes. It's, all the mutants are cordoned off to a slum, and so she is a mutant I thought prostitute. it was an implant. No. No, people have weird kinks in the future. People have weird kinks now. Oh, it's very much advertised. It's like she's very lucky she has that defect. She gets to charge more for, you know, Johns and such. But that movie's good. Uh, I will probably have you watch RoboCop at some point because RoboCop is very similar to Starship Troopers in its, you know, observations of American fascism. I do think that this was excellent anti-fascist art. I think Starship Troopers sometimes. I watch movies and I'm like, nah, it's just fluff. And, you know, that's the same with books. That's the same with uh, a lot of stuff. Not everything is art. I think this was art. Absolutely. I, I also, I like that it's not trying to be subtle. It, you know, I think that there, I think subtlety in satire is often a the wrong choice. And, you know, who am I to judge you know, art as it's created? But I think you know, there's so many things that are satirical that people don't seem to get. Like, I, nobody, like, I mean, it, now that it's become a meme, people understand Fight Club. But, like, most of the people who are fans of the movie Fight Club are not aware of how much Fight Club hates its protagonists. Yeah, Fight Club is uh, one of those ones that for the longest time, uh, people, people would read it and or watch it, and not understand it at all. Um, by people, I mean mostly men. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I can just tell you, as a woman, uh, you very intimately know who is and is not a threat, and largely those threats are men. And you don't always know which men are threats, but you do know you are raised to know that men are threats. Um, and so when you watch that film as a woman, I think, at least in my experience and in the experience of women I have discussed this with, you can watch Fight Club and you can go, oh, that man is unhinged. That man is not someone you want to be around. That's not someone you want to date. Absolutely. I from, um, I don't necessarily have a specifically male perspective, but I think part of why it, the shift is happening so much is I think that there was a time where because the movie is very much, it is critiquing this idea, but the characters are bored of having a safe and secure job and want their masculinity to be reinforced and challenged. And I think as we have left the 90s and early 2000s and the wage gaps have sort of become more apparent and like, you know, wages are stagnant rents and home prices are going through the roof. I think it's easier to look at that and see like 
that's crazy. It's crazy to be like upset that you have job security. Like no one feels that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. But I also think that there is another thing. And I think this is, you know, I, I had kind of tongue in cheek said this in a previous episode that masculinity is a prison. Um, mm-hmm. And I believe I added to that that men are trash and belong in the dumpster. Go ahead. Yes, but that's not the point I'm getting at. The point I'm getting at is in second wave feminism, we did not talk much about masculinity except in terms of how it impacted women. And we didn't really talk about it a lot in terms of how it impacts men. And there are a lot of masculinity scholars now who talk about how damaging masculinity as it exists right now is for men. But we're starting to talk about how certain elements of masculinity harm men and i think men are now starting to go oh wait this is this is fucked up i don't like this expectation of me why can't i do x y or z why don't i have that freedom and it is becoming more common both with the internet and just with how we are starting to talk and share experiences and hopefully generate more empathy for men willing to do the work to heal themselves as well because women have kind of had to do all of that for years absolutely and i like i just i want to give credit to men who are doing that who have chosen to do that work and who are trying to kind of unpack and work on things so that they're taking care of themselves they're maybe setting up a world where their sons or the younger men and boys in their lives have people that they can look at. They have men that they can look at and go, oh, well, my Uncle Scooter's cool because sometimes he cries when he needs to cry and it's not, it doesn't make him less of a man, you know? Stuff like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Is there something you'd like to wrap up, Emmy? Or are we ready to do our sign-off? So we've gotten a little off topic with Fight Club, but um, I think I've said all I need to say about Starship Troopers. I thought it was fun. I thought it was sad, um, a great critique of fascism, and a wonderful kind of. I thought it it was it did a great job of making you really feel, like it made me feel. There were moments where I just went, "Oh," and I grabbed my chest because I felt bad. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and I don't usually get that much empathy from a movie. Uh, not to say I'm a, like a sociopath and an empathetic person. I just movies aren't my thing. No, but um, I, yeah, I thought that this was a a great criticism, uh, an excellent satire. Do you have anything to add to it? No, I think we pretty much covered anything. Everything. Okay, so here's the reminder: next episode we're going to be covering Poker Face with yep. Natasha Lyonne. After that, we will do the first Throne of Glass episode which is books one through three yes um and then i think that's it for the month we hope you join us and we thank you for joining us tonight absolutely and as always this one was for the ladies